Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. In the year 2007, the state of Kansas poured millions of dollars into programs to rehabilitate criminal offenders, many of whom had substance abuse problems. The recidivism rate dropped, they could postpone the construction of new prisons, and the number of people who violated their paroles plummeted. But the recession is undoing that movement, yet the dots are lining up such that we once again see how proper treatment can keep people out of jail. In February 2010, a detailed report called Behind Bars 2, Substance Abuse in America's Prison Population was published by the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University. That center is also called Casa Columbia, and its website is www, it's one word now, Casa Columbia, C-A-S-A-C-O-L-U-M-B-I-A dot org. Susan Foster is the Vice President and Director of Policy Research and Analysis for Casa Columbia. Ms. Foster, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Abby. The report is very thorough with many statistics. Let's start with some numbers and just talk about where this is all going. How big is the problem of substance abuse amongst the incarcerated in the United States? Well, our latest report found that fully 85 percent of inmates are there in prison today or in jail because alcohol or other drugs were implicated in their crimes or in their incarceration. And if you look underneath that into what that means, you find that fully 66 percent of inmates today meet medical criteria for a substance use disorder. So they have a medical diagnosis. And then another about 450,000 or more meet other criteria that are alcohol and drug involved. For example, they may have had histories of illicit drug use or alcohol treatment. They were under the influence of alcohol or other drugs when they committed their crimes. They may have committed their offense to get money to buy drugs or they were incarcerated for an alcohol or drug law violation or share some combination of those characteristics. So when you add that up, you get 85% of the inmate population. And that's worse than it was when we did our first study in 98, and then then we found about 80% were substance involved. Two points come to mind. Number one, obviously, the differences between what's going on in the legal system and what's going on in the mental health aspects are tightly interwoven. They're not fragmented. Because clearly, so many people have mental health issues and they're going into the legal system. Wow, that's that's, that's a very high number. It, it's huge. We, When we look, first of all, inmates are seven times likelier to have an alcohol or other drug disorder than the general population. Another third of inmates have what we consider a very conservative definition of a mental health disorder, which would be a past diagnosis of history or history of treatment. And about a quarter have both a substance use and mental health disorder. So we, our prisons and jails are packed with individuals who have uh, substance use and mental health disorders, most of whom are receiving very little in the way of treatment. Hmm. One of the things um, amongst many that you mentioned in your report, which I found interesting, is that the number of people, number of inmates in jail, almost twice as likely to have had one parent who was abusing alcohol or other drugs. It's almost a two-to-one ratio. You really can see some intergenerational uh, issues at play here. We know that substance-involved inmates are likelier than those who are not substance-involved to come from families with a history of substance use problems and a history of criminal involvement. And we know that you know they are likelier to start committing their crimes at younger ages, to come in contact with the justice system more frequently, and to be reincarcerated than those who aren't substance-involved. And of particular concern is that the inmates are parents to more than 2.2 
million minor children, and about three-quarters of those children are age 12 or younger. So if we could keep them at home longer, if they had good treatment like what happened in Kansas, then hopefully these kids wouldn't be exposed to the same nefarious cycle that their parents fell into. Exactly. If you could provide treatment to these offenders so that their medical disorders could be treated, clearly some of them would still participate in criminal activity. But all of the research we've shown of individuals who are inmates or involved in criminal activity who receive treatment for substance use disorders have far less chance of reoffending than those who don't. So the other thing is that these parents mostly are imprisoned at considerable distance from their kids. Over half of state inmates, for example, haven't seen their children at all so, since their imprisonment. That's a good point. That's a very good point. We, we know that without intervention, these children themselves are at high risk of following in the footsteps of their parents. And so many of these probably do not have the best health insurance as well. Well, we didn't actually look at that, but I think it's reasonable to suspect that there are multiple problems that these children face. One of the problems that we're having, at least here in Florida, is that we have a very good drug farm. They call it the drug farm that's run by the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, and it's looking like that's going to close. And so a lot of the things that you focused about is actually the percentage of people who do get some sort of treatment for their substance abuse problems in jail. I'd like to hear your thoughts and observations about that. There are quite a few examples of best practice. We've had guidelines for uh, addressing the substance-involved needs of inmates available, some dating back two decades. So it isn't that we don't know what to do. And there are examples in many states where the combination of science-based treatment and aftercare can reduce recidivism. For example, in the state of Delaware, we have evidence that five years rearrest rates are down considerably compared to a control, a control group. In California, the reincarceration rates are significantly less than the control group. Similarly, in Illinois, we know that those practices work. We also know that providing an alternative to incarceration, a diversion option that is treatment-based, such as drug courts, DUI courts, prosecutorial-based diversion programs like the Brooklyn DTAP program, and even intensive treatment-based probation has the potential to yield even more cost savings because they avoid the incarceration cost. One of the facts that's noted in your report says that if we properly treat people in the jail, the investment would more than pay for itself in, in a year after release because they wouldn't have to go back to jail. Exactly. We looked at other research, for example, the National Institute on Drug Abuse estimates from a, a review of many studies that the return of investing in treatment for this population could be more than $12 for every dollar spent. And that's a result of reduced substance-related criminal justice and healthcare costs and reduced crime. We did our own analysis and we found that if we provided, or if the state or the federal government local localities would provide the most intensive and evidence-based treatment services, that's prison-based treatment and aftercare, to all inmates with substance use disorders who weren't receiving treatment. And if only 11% of them, an enormously conservative estimate, remained substance and crime-free and employed, the intervention would pay for itself in a year, and it would reap over $90,000 in benefits for each additional year a former inmate remained substance crime-free and employed. You, you don't get return on investments like this in any other area of public policy. It's compelling. It's just absolutely compelling. And it's 
it yields sharp reductions in crime, too. It's just, it's very difficult to grasp that with the knowledge we now have available, that addiction is a brain disease that can be effectively treated in the context of the justice system, and that it can avoid such enormous costs, which are now strangling many states, why we are not doing more in the way of treatment. I think there's issues remain of stigma and clearly of misunderstanding the the real nature of the problem. I think that's true, and I also think that we're now in an incredible economic crisis, and states find it very difficult to make any investment at all in a new service, and basically they are in a cut mode. So we're not seeing that the cuts in this area could actually result in increased crime and increased health care costs and increased incarceration costs. One of the other, or actually I want to say two of the other findings in your report that I found intriguing is that female inmates have higher rates of substance abuse and mental health disorders than male inmates. Interesting. It, it is. We see that some of the reasons for that could be that women inmates compared to male inmates are almost four times likelier to have been physically abused before incarceration or sexually abused. They're about 58% likelier to have ever been homeless. They are a third likelier to have had parents or guardians who misused alcohol or other drugs. So we know this link between physical or sexual abuse, for example, and substance use or substance misuse is huge. In part, it could be an attempt to self-medicate a problem that hasn't mental health problem that hasn't been addressed. So if we miss, and this is almost redundant in trying to say it, but if we miss treating it, these people are even at a higher risk of coming in again and again and again. It's so exactly, obvious. and we have seen a higher rate of increase in the inmate population uh, of the female inmates than males. We know that the female inmate population is still a small percentage. They're about 8.4% of the total population, but they're likelier to have substance use disorders, mental health disorders, and co-occurring disorders than male inmates. And so being a smaller population, they're not going to gain as much attention and as much money, and and it becomes the revolving door again. Well, that's the risk. That's the risk. I mean, the problem is we need to look for these problems. We don't effectively screen for substance use disorders at any point in the justice system. If we began to screen at the point of first arrest, for example, and channel people who have this disease into proper care, we could save costs all along the way. And those costs could be intergenerational. One of the issues that always comes up is that when it comes to the prison system, it is such a confluence of all the psychological, sociological, political, and other conditions that influence our decision-making processes that it becomes very convoluted. Well, it is. And also it's been confused by political rhetoric that polarizes the notions of accountability for crime and treatment for disease as if they were mutually exclusive. The fact is that they're complementary, that you can hold people accountable and treat the disease simultaneously, and that doing so gets you much better outcomes. One of the findings in your report that was intriguing and maybe a a point that needs to be discussed because I don't know if everyone understands it or I was interested in it, was you stated that blacks and Hispanics have lower rates of substance abuse and mental health disorders than whites and Native Americans. I would think asking the average person, they wouldn't know that that is the statistic. Right. Most people erroneously believe that minorities 
have higher rates of substance use. And I think that that harkens back to all of the publicity surrounding the crack cocaine epidemic in the 80s. But what we have is a prison system that's overpopulated by blacks and Hispanics. If you look at incarceration rates, about one in 100 adults is in prisoner jail. That includes one in 106 white men, one in 36 Hispanic men, one in 15 black men, and one in nine black men aged 20 to 34. So what's going on is not a function of the substance use issue only because they do have lower rates. There are other sort of larger sociological issues going on here related to crime and imprisonment. And it speaks to the complexity of it. It it truly is. It really does. One of the other things, and I applaud you folks for doing this because I haven't seen it done very much, actually, is that you decided to look at the fetal alcohol syndrome domain. I'm interested, how did this come up? And tell us a little bit about what you found. Well, as we began to explore the issue, we, we often, with many of our studies, do a series of interviews with other people in the field to make sure we're covering issues that are important and relevant. And we had been approached by actually a parent who has a adopted a child with fetal alcohol syndrome, and as he grew up, he became increasingly involved with the justice system, and she was having no luck trying to get the justice system, either the juvenile or the adult correction system, to focus on the issue. So we began to look at that issue, and unfortunately, there are very little data available. The inmate data survey does not ask about that question, but there is other information that shows that there's a tight link between individuals with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, really, the sort of broad category, uh, caused by exposure to alcohol in utero. And those individuals are at high risk for justice system involvement, both because of their family history of excessive alcohol use and the condition itself, which can include poor impulse control, poor anger management skills, and, and poor judgment. So we know that about 60% of people from other research, that about 60% of those age 12 and over with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder have been involved with the justice system and that we're really not addressing that issue. Which then rolls over to what I thought was a great title for Chapter 5. It's called The Treatment Gap. Reading it, you know, few inmates have access to pharmacologic therapy. Women need specialized or tailored treatments. Interesting. I don't even know which point to begin with. Uh, (laughs) Well, we know that only about 11% of those with substance use disorders receive anything even called professional treatment. And we have reason to be concerned about the quality of the treatment that is provided because very few facilities offer a sufficient complement of what we know are evidence-based treatment practices, such as providing a comprehensive assessment, providing evidence-based behavioral and pharmacological therapies, treating co-occurring disorders, assuring effective active care. In fact, a very disturbing finding was that between 40 and 60 percent of prison and jail medical directors report that they don't even know if pharmacological therapies are appropriate for inmates. That's an astounding finding. So we know that the treatment gap is profound in the prison system. Also, very few offer any treatment at all for nicotine dependence. That's important because, as we know, smoking or any form of nicotine-related tobacco use actually is a public health problem in its own right. But we now know that it's also continued smoking is a relapse factor for an alcohol use disorder. 
So if we're really going to effectively treat other forms of drug addiction, we need to treat the nicotine addiction as well. Do the inmates need to be in specialized units in the jails, in psychiatric units, or sometimes, like I mentioned earlier, a drug farm? Or can this be done more or less in the general population? Do you have any data? Well, we know that less than 17% of the facilities offer treatment in specialized settings. And we also know from other research that type of treatment in a specialized setting can produce the best results because it removes the inmates from the larger prison culture, which may be antithetic to a treatment or a recovery-based model. So we do know that it's rare if inmates get a treatment in specialized settings, but that that seems to be the best practice available. So we would certainly encourage more prison systems to adopt specialized treatment settings. I mean, if you look at it, the state of Illinois, they have a, an entire institution devoted to treatment, the Sheridan facility, and that has shown greater, better outcomes. One of the problems is, and I don't know how many people know the difference between a county jail or a city jail and a prison, but if when someone's arrested and obviously in the full throes of their alcohol or drug problem, it's transitory. They're only there for a couple weeks, a couple months until they go in front of the judge, and then sometimes they go to a prison where they may be exposed to a longer program or they're back on the streets and where unfortunately too many times they're lost into the the system Mm -hmm. again. We don't catch them. So acute sort of interventions when someone is just arrested, perhaps when their motivation is the highest to try to change things, it doesn't sound like that's common enough. You're right. We aren't taking advantage of that opportunity. And quite honestly, if you have a short term of incarceration, it does complicate the ability to provide treatment. However, there are community resources. The criminal justice system could do a better job, but identifying substance use problems and connecting offenders with treatment services located in the community. And also, we've seen that making such conditions or participation in that condition of release can be very effective. The threat of reincarceration and the control offered by the justice system can be very helpful in retaining people in treatment long enough to make a difference. And making a difference is such, it's not a question anymore. We know it works. It doesn't work all the time. That would be ideal. But it works enough that it's really worth our investment in treating these folks when they're in jail and we have a chance to do it because society pays for it over and over and over again. I think your report is incredibly intriguing. A lot of people should read it and understand it and look at what the ramifications of the data that you report, uh, what the ramifications are for our society. Susan Foster is the Vice President and Director of Policy Research Research and Analysis for the the Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University in New York. Ms. Foster, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm delighted to have joined you, Abby. Thank you. Have a good day. You too.